Welcome to the One School Podcast. My name is Kevin Bybee. I'm a family physician trying to look at real preventative care by exploring how we can have schools be a 24-7, 365-day safe space for our community's children by having conversations with relevant domain experts. Today, I'm speaking with Dennis Morrow, Executive Director of Janus Youth Programs in Portland, Oregon. Uh, Dennis, thanks for joining me today. I would love to hear how you found yourself where you're at on the other side of uh, an internet call with me today and why you think figuring out a way to make our schools more robust is a a worthwhile project. All right. Well, uh, thank you for inviting me. And I'd say I'm always interested in creative ideas. And I think this is one of the more creative that I've seen for a long time. Uh, That's what intrigues me. I come to you uh, via Janus. I'm not representing Janus today, but this has been my career. I started working at Janus in 1980 and told him I'd be here for three to five years because I get bored really easy. Uh, but you can pretty well assume it hasn't been boring since then. Uh, we started out as a small, actually one of the first seven residential treatment programs in the country as a, as a pilot project, as a model, attempting to figure out how to work with teenagers that had drug problems. This was in 1972 basically, uh, because there were a lot of kids that were using drugs back then and a lot of adults that were using drugs, but there wasn't a lot of help because nobody thought they were a problem. But people in the community began to see this as an issue. They brought it forward, and then Janice actually was formed to begin to address that. Uh, I got connected because I moved to Oregon in 1973. I uh, went to school. Uh, I, I have a career, I call it career by random chance, because all of the choices I made in my career, they didn't work out, but they ended up working out better long term. So I uh, graduated from Stanford University with on a scholarship with a uh, degree in journalism, applied for a job at a bank and didn't get it and didn't know what to do. So I went into Vista, which is a volunteer program for a year. And that's where I learned about you could actually have a job helping other people. I'd never heard of that before. So then I got a scholarship and went to Washington, D.C. and got a two-year degree in, in uh, rehabilitation counseling. But while I was there, I met my lifetime mentor, Jim Kenny, who taught me about the addiction, the issue of addiction, which, again, was very, very early in the field. So I moved to Oregon in 1973, and Jim followed me a couple years after that and actually was hired to be a counselor in the first methadone treatment program in the history of the state. So... Uh, we had addicts who had been addicted to a medical study to methadone, and the federal government required they get treatment, and we had to start. I was a supervisor and a counselor in that program. So that's how I got connected. And my connection with Janice was that my my boss, his wife, actually was the clinical director at Janice, so he was my supervisor at the methadone program. She was working on the teenage side. Uh, I had more experience uh, in some of the drug issues that they were beginning to face, uh, as, as the program had continued to age up. Uh, but then she had more experience on the social work side. So we traded services back and forth and I got to know something about Janice. And when the executive director left, they asked me to apply. I didn't think I wanted to do that, but one more time I did it because I had some friends over here and they said, yeah, you got to come. And then I did. So another, (laughs) another random choice. (laughs) So that's been, uh, my, and so Janice, the, the reason that we get connected to you all is Janice over the years has grown to be one of the larger uh, service agencies in Oregon, working specifically with high risk, very high risk teenagers and young adults, and actually now teen moms and also babe, infant babies as well. 
but our program, we have over 40 programs at 20 different locations. We're in Oregon. We're also the only program in Southwest Washington working with homeless and runaway youth on the streets and in, have a large number of those uh, programs in Oregon. But we have 40 programs at 20 locations. And we work with, the last time we put a, years, a year together, we had worked with over 6,000 kids. But literally not a single one of them ought to ever need a service like we provided if they had what they deserve to have from their families in the community when they were kids. And that's what makes me a believer in prevention because I believe we have some of the most successful programs in the country in terms of the youth we work with. But I tell parents there's not a single youth that ought to ever need a Janus program if they're getting what they what they deserved at home. So I think you've got a wild and crazy idea here, but there's a lot of stuff around the edges I like. And I think we have to have some wild and crazy ideas because I don't want to have to have Janice keep growing. I don't think we ought to, I don't think we ought to need to get bigger, but that's, that's the connection that we made. Amazing stuff. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to be in a position where you're actively trying to work yourself out of a job, right? Yes. Uh, I had uh, had the fortune to volunteer with Yellow Brick Road, which is one of Janice's uh, programs when I was applying to medical school. And it was very eye opening and very humanizing for people who are very easy to dismiss. And so it's a, a, an opportunity that I am forever grateful for and changed by. So um, thanks for helping me get to where I am today as well. Well, and that's just, that's just a quick example. If you look at, we are uh, one of the larger providers of homeless services for youth on the streets, again, in Oregon and perhaps in the Northwest. Numbers, because we do so much street outreach. We still do street outreach in Oregon. We still do it in uh, Clark County as well. We have emergency shelters and we have some long-term transitional facilities, but we also have a number of other agencies we work with to do that. But when I do presentations in the community about homeless youth, I start out by saying, Let's not talk about homeless youth, because if I say homeless youth to you, you're going to imagine a drugged out kid on a freeway with a sign saying, give me your money. And I said, how about instead of that, we call it familyless children? Because I don't know a single kid, and most of these youth leave home in their early to mid-teens, and I don't know anybody who's 14, 15 years old that says, I'd rather go out and sleep in the rain tonight than be home if I had a home that was safe to be there for. So I tell them if we want to prevent homeless youth, we have to create programs that will prevent familyless children because that's what we're creating generation after generation. Exactly. None of these programs exist in a silo. None of any problems that we're trying to address exist in a silo. And exactly that, that's what the, how do we address the intergenerational trauma, the intergenerational poverty and like you said, wild and craziest parts of my idea was I just kept thinking about a patient of mine who had had no safe place to go. He wouldn't have qualified for any of the homeless shelters, and he was too kind of dysregulated for most homeless shelters. And so I always thought it would be great if the school itself could be a place where kids could spend the night if they needed to. But um, apparently that is pretty out there. And so why is that not the best logistical um, solution to filling a hole for how do we keep kids safe at night? Well, I think the starting point is it's going to be very difficult for a school, which is a public entity uh, and has responsibilities in that area, 
to take on the liability of having youth and kids who would be there overnight because that's a huge increase in a completely different mission. And so I think part of it could just be the, the difficulty of working with that, that entity around how to do that. But as we were talking uh, before, the uh, one of the biggest barriers I see to that is that if you are going to have kids under 18 sleeping with you, then you become a licensed shelter. You become a licensed program of some kind. And then you have to go through very stringent licensing standards. They have like, I forget what it is, but I, when they come through our programs on an annual basis, they have a checklist. It's got like, I think, 280 different items that they have to, they look at and they walk through the building and then you have to have staff and the staff all have to be trained to a certain level. You have to have records that document that training. Uh, any kind of uh, issue within the program has to have an incident report that's filed with the state and they investigate that. So the issue is it's a very, uh, and in the old days, again, it used to be, you could just open up a program and say, come on in and sleep and that would be fine. Uh, but what we have now is if they're under 18 and the younger they are, the more their stringency goes up around that. But uh, our shelters, we have shelters for uh, 12 to uh, one shelter that's 12 to 18 years old. And then we have a couple of shelters that we operate that are like 18 to 25. And even the 18 to 25, if they're under 21, we still have to have some stuff that we do with them. But under 18, it's a very... Uh, and I, I don't call it rigid from a negative standpoint. It's protective because what the state has learned over time, and this is a national trend, is when they did not pay attention to this stuff, they had agencies where kids were getting abused. Uh, and similarly with foster care, when you had foster parents and they weren't regulating it. So they take very seriously now their responsibility and we consider them a partner. But part of the partnership is they come in and they give us that list and they have a scheduled visit they do every year and then they have an unscheduled visit. So they just call up one day and say, we're coming in and we're going to walk through and we need to make sure that. And if you're feeding kids and it's going to be, OK, let me let me see where's all of your all, do all of your staff have food handlers training? Do all of your we used to use uh, uh, volunteers that would like churches oftentimes would cook meals for our homeless youth shelters downtown. We have two, the only two shelters in Portland for homeless youth. And that was a huge cost savings and a huge lack of complication for us. And then the state came through and said, if that food is going to these kids, then you have to prove that the kitchen where it was made was a licensed kitchen, <laughs> which meant the church kitchen, or if somebody cooked a dinner and sometimes we'd have people who would just cook stuff in their homes and bring it down there. And the kids loved it and we loved it. And we actually had to shift and now we have to prepare all of that food on site at a much higher cost. But the issue was they literally said, you can't take, you cannot let food come into this door. You can't come through that door unless you know it came from a certified kitchen. And so that that's the level of, and I, again, I don't think that's, it creates difficulty. I don't think that's a bad thing because it's coming from issues where kids have not been taken care of. But it does say the idea of just having a place where kids can sleep is not as easy as it was 30 years ago. So I think that's you have to look at some different models around that. Well, just one of the things that, uh, again, we had had some earlier conversations. And one of the things that I mentioned to you was this concept of what we call a host home model. Uh, and host homes are when you have it's like a foster home model, but it may not it may not be some it may not be a state foster care operated by the state. It could be a uh, host home, could be somebody that a nonprofit agency has a group of, we have several nonprofits that use this model for alternate shelter or alternate living situations for kids under certain kinds of emergency circumstances. Uh, way back in the early days when we were doing uh, working with runaway kids, 
we actually, the original model before we had a shelter was we had volunteer homes. And again, these were volunteers that came through churches because uh, our program was started actually one of our programs by ecumenical ministries of working by a church based group. And so they had volunteer homes. And if a kid needed a home, we could, but the homes had to be licensed and all of that, we could take care of that, but then they would do that for free. So that let also cut the cost way down on that. So as we were talking, what my thought was, if you actually are able to get a site beginning for a school and you want to offer that service of having emergency housing uh, for the older kids we have a couple of shelters in town that are currently available ours that we operate uh, th that they could get into uh, and one of them that's just exactly up to age 18 that's exactly who it's for any kid anywhere that's on the street at night and does not have a safe place to go to and right now that's a 24-hour availability uh, but particularly for the younger kids uh, like 10 or 11 and under, then you're looking at these host homes could be a great, I think, a great possibility for you. And potentially you could even get some volunteer services around that. Fantastic. That's exactly the kind of thing that I wouldn't have been aware of or realized how difficult it would have been. And it's a nice, uh, you know, practical alternative too. I, I so I'm definitely going to have to start talking to ecumenical ministries or, or somebody else in the, that, uh, that world. Do you see any issues with, for example, if there was, you know, the gym or the library of a school was open 24 seven. So at least there's a warm place to stay. If a kid just needed to spend a few hours out of the cold and check their email, is that something that would be viable with, uh, less, uh, difficulty? If it, yeah, if it were a drop-in center and not a shelter, now, if you, and I don't know there because we work with the teenagers, so, uh, but I'm not sure. There's probably an age where you still would have to have some kind of licensing or oversight, I think, but I don't know for sure. But yeah, that's a, but that's a completely different, somebody is coming in to get some hot chocolate that's different than coming in to spend a night. Okay. Again, just, you know, they may not need to spend the night, but if it's cold outside and they just need somewhere and they didn't know where else to go, thinking about have, how to have at least the lights on at the school nearby so that when you don't know where to go, just go to school is kind of my philosophy. Um, so you've uh, had a lot of experience with, um, you know, addiction and so... I'm just curious if you know, homeless youth and addiction go hand in hand and how important is it to interrupt the, the addiction cycle when, when kids are young and is there a way that you would use that experience to inform school structure or school culture? Well, I think what we know about drug use is uh, prevention is more effective than intervention and the younger the better. Mm -hmm. uh, those are kind of the core elements. Uh, when I came to Oregon and started working in, now again, the methadone treatment program, now we're talking about people who are active uh, heroin or opiate users and qualify for this medical substitute, which is an opiate also, but it's a legal substitute that can be managed safely. And that's what we, what we did with them. Uh, but we had people, uh, many young people on, in their 20s uh, in that program over time. But in terms of what happens if you don't catch it in time, uh, the oldest client I ever worked with, I still remember his name was Morgan. 
and he had he had the number 0007. We numbered clients and to keep confidentiality in play. So that meant he was the seventh person to ever get methadone in the state of Oregon. And he was 89 years old when I started working with him. Now, this man had become an addict in the 1800s before it was illegal. I didn't know until I until he told me his life story. In 1917, they passed the Harrison Narcotic Act. He had become an addict. He was an African-American man, and he worked on the railroads when they were building the railroads. He worked with Chinese, and the Chinese had the highest opium, quality opium in the world. They wouldn't let him have any because he wasn't Chinese, but he slept in the bunk, and they actually called it a bunk habit, that you, if you had an enclosed space and they were smoking all night, uh, you would still get high. And so he became a legal addict. He could go down to down to the drugstore and for a nickel, he could buy a bottle of codeine and drink it and he was fine. And then in 17, they made him a, a criminal. And he had a life history of moving. He had the five or six different programs the federal government had opened around the country and he got to our program. And that was where he finally stabilized because he got the methadone treatment. And he was 89 when I started working with him. Uh, he was 92 when I was able to successfully detox him from heroin. And we were able to do that because he was willing to make a commitment that it needed to be able to follow through and do what it, what it took. And he was, had a lot of energy. Uh, he always said the drugs kept him young. And he came back about five years later, and he or uh, three years later, so 95, and he was still just full of energy. And he had gotten to go back and visit his family on the East Coast, which he couldn't travel or do any of that stuff. But what that man taught me was, number one, it's not always the person's fault when they're using drugs. And number two, it is possible, it is always possible for recovery to happen. And I had, I could give you another dozen other stories that represent that at different ones, but he's, he's my old, most oldest, but it just said, you know, he waited 89 years to get to finally get the help he needed. And then three years after that, he was able to become drug free and stay drug free for the rest of his life. So I'm a believer in treatment, but I would a lot rather do the prevention work in the front end if we can, particularly for the kid side of it. Absolutely. Great motivational story. And uh, another shameless plug for how criminalization and the drug war only make things worse in some way, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You had mentioned you went to a, a boarding prep school. And is there anything about your experience you think that would inform what we could do with public schools that um, could make them, you know, a more inclusive community? Is there anything from that model that would be applicable or could be applicable to, um, you know, a public school that's a 24 seven safety safety spot for our kids? Well, I, I, I don't think it would inform what you could do. Uh, well, maybe a couple areas. Uh, what it informed me was what you couldn't do. <laughs> uh, cause I was a, a, uh, only child in a small town, 750 people in central middle of Iowa, a farm town, and I got a scholarship to go to a prep school on the East Coast. And it was one of the two highest level preparatory college and prep schools, a college preparation school in the country at that time. And they were giving scholarships away to try and expand their, because all they had was a bunch of rich kids locked up together and they wanted to start expanding culturally. So before there was race and gender, there was like economics. So they were trying to get poor kids in so that the other kids would have somebody to meat that wasn't all just look like Tam. So in a lot of ways, we were the, uh, we weren't, we, we weren't, we were the minority. I mean, that's what we were, we were brought in to be that. And I went to school with people like David Eisenhower, who was like son, 
uh, Yasha Heifetz, who was Jay Heifetz, or Jay Heifetz, who was Yasha Heifetz, the violinist. Uh, I went to, you know, these people owned huge corporations, owned whole mountains and whole islands, and that was their life. Uh, and, uh, and as a scholarship student, part of what we had to do is we all had jobs that we had to do, scholarship jobs, to earn our money. That we weren't really earning it, but it was like, okay, if you're going to be here for free, then you're going to have to uh, help check this out or clean this out or do the dishes or hand out the food at lunch or do something like that. So I really understood from a very deep level. I didn't know it at that point in time, but when, when we got to racism and sexism, it was like I understood what was going on as a white boy being a white boy who was not accepted into the culture in the same way. Not to say the school wasn't attempting to do that, but... Uh, now, what I, what I learned was, uh, I, I think the one thing that that school did better than any place I've ever seen is we had very small classes. We never had more than 10 or 12 kids, boys in a class. And that gave you an enormous opportunity to focus in and learn. And that's where I learned to think, where I learned to analyze, where I learned to write. And I became a journalism major because I already knew how to write by the time I was, I was writing term papers by the time I was a sophomore or you know, junior in high school. Uh, so what the school taught me is there's a different way to do education than throwing 20 or 30 kids into a classroom and over having one teacher bear the responsibility for trying to do all of that. Uh, and that was, I call it very personalized teaching that we got and very close relationship with those teachers. And that part, it taught me the other stuff. It taught me, as you can see. I went from New Hampshire to California, so I was trying to get out as far away as I could. And my only criteria was it had to be a high quality college. It also was co-educational because I was not going to spend, at the time, Ivy League was also all all boys. And I was not going to spend four more years of my life locked up without any kind of uh, interaction with a female gender. Let's put it that way. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, I think you're touching on a real good port part of, you know, um, you know, all the levels of diversity and, you know, especially, um, class mixing, which is, um, a, you know, a big issue these days. I mean, not that it ever wasn't, but especially with the, the widening wealth gap and thinking about how we can make the, uh, these places inviting for, for everybody so that it doesn't become a place for just the quote, those people. That's a big thing that I'd like to keep in mind is how does, uh, an organization like this be attractive to everybody so that everybody gets to mix and we all learn how everybody or at least learn how more people live and therefore more people are humanized definitely the school or the teacher to student ratio is so huge and i think that's a, a money issue and hopefully elon musk is listening to this and he can help us fund a better student teacher ratio yeah i don't blame the teacher for what they can't control you know, I see I've known a huge number of really great, I mean, in my own life, but also in my career since then, just really incredibly compassionate, dedicated. But, you know, if you look at if you're a high school teacher and you have in Portland now six to eight classes a day and you have 25 to 35 kids in a class. It's like and when I've, I've had I've had uh, meetings with teachers and it's like uh, it's like they they want to. They want to interact and support the kids, but they are just simply at an overwhelmed point in terms of their physical ability to do it. Uh, I do uh, another one of my hobbies is I do classes for parents going through a divorce in Multnomah County and uh, Clackamas County. We have them throughout the state, but in those two counties, it's the same. 
And the class is if you are a parent and you are going through a divorce or a legal separation agreement, then you're required to take that class. And I helped design that 21 years ago, and I've been doing it ever since. So I've now worked with and talked to uh, over 20,000 divorcing parents, literally, uh, with kids of all ages. And many of the divorcing parents, particularly when you get to the month of late June and July, a lot of times we get teachers that come into those classes because that's when they can be in there. And I've had teachers in groups that I'm operating in those classes, and they will say they're just so frustrated because they they want to work with all of the all of the kids, but they can't. And they want to work with, they want to support parents. And many of the teachers will say, I can't call 30 parents every day or every week, but if you call me, I'll call you back. You know, if, if you make the, so what I try and coach parents around in the current school system is make an ally of your teacher and your guidance counselor and go to school in the first couple, three weeks of school and meet all of the teachers after school when school's not in session give them your contact information and here's a way to get hold of me anytime of the day or night. And then every couple of weeks, check in with them and see how it's going. Uh, Cause if you want to look at the, the, the failure of this, I know when I've had, and I've got a pretty big family, I can tell you about myself, which also puts some perspective on this, but I have multiple times, like in high school, uh, they used to do the back to school night in Portland the week before Thanksgiving. And that's when, as a, as a parent of a high school, so if you had a freshman in high school, you'd go back to school and then you go into the gym and you sign up with the teacher that does, uh, all the different teachers have their class lists out. And I could remember being at a table with a teacher and then next to me is another teacher and the parent's signing up. And then the teacher looks at him, looks out the grade book and goes, oh, I haven't seen your kid since the second week of school. Or, oh, your kid dropped out last month, didn't she tell you? And I mean, I've seen parents that didn't know their kids dropped out until they went to the back to school night. And so what I tell parents is, and if you have kids who have had early life trauma, they're at higher risk of dropping out. Kids going through divorce at higher risk of dropping out. So I say, if I believe all parents should do this, but if you have kids that are at any kind of risk, then make the school your ally because they wanna be, and the teachers wanna be there, but you have to reach out to them and be, be the one that they'll call because they have the contact information and they know you're checking in every couple of weeks and, and doing that. So I like, people can't see me, but I'm putting my hands together. I like, I like blending and becoming a partner with the, with the school because I've never seen a teacher or a guidance counselor that didn't care, but I've seen them t- with too much work to ever do everything they absolutely want to do. Absolutely. You know, you touched on a great point again, which is how do we get the families involved or support the families so that they can be involved? You know, I can only imagine people who are already burning the candle from both ends. Wouldn't it be great if we could pay parents to do these classes, you know, go to parenting classes, go to divorce classes, support your kid at school classes, and people respond to incentives? I think it would be another investment that might pay itself off over the uh, the long term by giving people the resources to get involved the way you had recommended they would. Well, I just, I, I look at the response. If, if you look at the classes we have for divorcing parents, there's about 30 people in a class. And if it's not COVID times, they have to pay for the class and after work or on a Saturday morning, spend three and a half hours drive to the location and be there, which means they got to take care of their kids and everything else somewhere else. And they have to do that in order to legally finish off either the divorce or the or the separation agreement. So what we know is when they come in the door, because uh, I actually had to go to one of those classes because of stuff that was happening in my family. And when I went in the door, I didn't want to be there. 
I just wanted to get the damn thing and get done. But at the end, we give them feedback sheets and they will fill out the feedback. And most of them will say, I am so thankful. I never knew this. I never realized this. This is the most important thing I could have learned. I am there for my kids and because they want to be there for the kids. And we tell them we're not here about the divorce. We're here about because if you look at failure rates for kids, what you see is we have about a 50 percent divorce rate in this country today or separation because many of the people aren't even legally married now. Uh, and they've been tracking that for about 50 years. And the data shows that about 30 percent of kids coming out of a separation process are at high risk for the stuff that you're talking about wanting to prevent later. At high risk for uh, runaway from home, at high risk for dropout from school. If you drop out from school, then that becomes a, a risk for you. High risk of early teen pregnancy. And it's not the divorce that causes the damage. That's what we tell the parents. It's, and kids are not doing it to themselves. So it's things that we as parents can do. And if we do those, I always tell people, you won't have perfect kids, but you'll have a perfectly normal kid who will drive you nuts when they're a teenager, but they'll be alive and well to talk about it when they're in their 20s. And what you ever don't ever want to be is the parent who your kid takes you out to lunch when they're 25 and they say, where were you or why didn't you? Mm -hmm. That's the piece that we're here. And so we have parents who come in angry, resistant, and unmotivated, and they go out excited and enthused and believing that there's something they can do to really help their kids. But you've got to be able to give them we got to give them that information at a time when it's, when it's useful. And that's one of them. I always, I tell them, actually, I say, when I'm doing these classes at night, it's because I don't ever want to see your kids in my day job. Because if you think of the programs Janice operates, boys in the juvenile justice system, homeless youth and teen mothers, every one of those categories, disproportionately high numbers of youth who have been through a separation process. Mm -hmm. And, it's not the separation, getting a divorce or separating doesn't cause kids to have harm and they don't do it to themselves. So it's how we as parents manage it. And we can, again, not have perfect kids, but perfectly normal kids. And I said, that's the gift you're giving them is they get to have the life that they deserve. There you go. One more plug to keep our schools open 24 seven so that they don't have to worry about daycare. They can bring their kids to the school to get their parenting classes and we can, you know, motivate them to, to get in there and then they'd be uh, they'd see the benefits and be willing to come back. Um, you had mentioned a couple of um, uh, interesting buzzwords that I'd love for you to kind of give us a little bit more detail on. The So the seven C's of resilience and positive youth development, like how are those things that would be valuable to this project? Well, positive youth development, the first program that Janice operated for homeless youth was called Bridge House. And it was opened in 1984, and it was one of seven. It was one of seven model programs in the country trying to figure out how do you help homeless youth get off of the streets successfully. And the person that founded it, Jerry Fest, started out with he didn't call it positive youth development, but that's what we call it today. But his concept was that if you're going to help a youth, you have to believe that they have the answers, and you have to believe they have the strength and they have the ability. And so our job is to help them develop positively and provide what they need to do that. What they don't need is they don't need a parent. They don't need uh, you know, an alternate parent. They don't need a whole lot of rules that they're going to break and then get penalties for. But you, So he created a model that was called positive youth development, which is how do we work in a uh, supportive relationship with a youth. And it's not doing to, it's working with to help them identify what they want to achieve and then help them achieve it. And that program 
historically has had one of the highest success rates in the country of youth successfully transitioning into their own apartments, getting a job and staying in it uh, after they after they get done as, as homeless. But but so the positive youth development is kind of the the uh, scientific realm that came around this as people started looking at this about 20 years ago or so. And it started, it's been developing ever since. And what we have is we call the seven C's of resilience. And those are the seven C's. If you think of it, listen to this competence. So you believe the youth has competence. We're helping the youth gain confidence, make a contribution, feel a connection, find coping skills, be in control of their life and develop their character. So we have seven C's and that's what the staff are trained. This is your job is not to do it to them, you know, not to be the parent, not even I say, not to be a counselor who has answers. You have to believe those youth can find the answers for themselves and your job is to help them figure out how to do that. And that's been a model that's national now, but it's really, we, we believe in it really fully in terms of the, the work that we're doing with it, with the kids that we're working with. We take youth who have been in jail. Now imagine this, we have one of our programs that works with youth coming out of jail, I call it, but they call it youth incarceration, but it's a jail. And they're 17 or 18 to 25 years old we had a 22-year-old youth who a couple, three years ago came into that program. He had been incarcerated for nine years. Do the math. He's 22. His entire developmental adolescent process was in a locked institution where he's not going to learn anything he needs to know to how to survive on the outside. But when he can get into a program that can begin to believe in him, encourage him, finish his degree if he needs to, do what he needs to do to get a job, figure out how to do a budget, and those youth will transition into their own. We have another program that's called the Hope Partnership that works with youth in jail. We take volunteers that go into the incarcerated situation and do proactive, we call it pro-social workshops with the guys, learning workshops. We've got a Toastmasters club in that, in that jail, and those guys are brilliant speakers. We bring them out and do use them as public speakers for our events because they are just incredible voices once they learn how to do that. But what most people don't realize, we also have a scholarship program and Janice gives scholarships and the majority, the vast majority of our scholarships go to young men who are incarcerated. And we have boys who have graduated with bachelor's degrees in jail, who have graduated with master's degrees in jail. We have a youth who just got clemency and got out and is going to school of social work at PSU as a master's degree student. So, but you see, we believe that they have the capability to, to say, what, you got a kid in jail, how are they going to go to college? He says, no, they want to do that. They want to earn, they want to earn credits and then they want to earn a degree. And then all of a sudden they want to earn another degree. And if you believe they can do it and make it possible, that's what we see. That's positive youth development, I think, at its most basic level. Yeah, that resonates highly with me on so many levels. You know, you're giving somebody resources and putting them in an environment where they can grow. You're not labeling them with an intrinsic moral failing that makes them bad people. But you, like you said, find the good things in them because they've got the answers and they just need to be in an environment in which they can develop and, and grow, you know, garden, so to speak. Um, you know, you touched on, you know, incarceration again, and it just um, it irritates me uh, with uh, without saying anything expletive about the whole process of how we can find the money to spend $450,000 a year on an individual to keep them in prison, but we 
won't spend that same money to house them and put them through college. And, you know, you just mentioned how expensive it, it was to run a small youth shelter. And yet we're, we have almost zero qualms at all about keeping people in a prison industrial complex instead of actually, um, you know, restoratively rehabilitating them. So, well, actually, uh, this takes me a second. One more thing. I know when I think you might be getting near time here, but just I'll put it out there. You can edit it in or edit it out. But uh, the other area that I am very uh, passionate about is you're on the edge of it there, but it is like schools and how our schools and society deal with boys and men. And what we see is uh, research that I've done, and I have a class that's called Men in Addiction that I teach at Portland Community College, where we look at what are the gender what are the gender differences in brains and biology between males and females, and then how do we accommodate that? Everything from parenting to our school systems to our counseling systems. And you were talking about the prison industrial complex. I talk about the school to jail pipeline. Yes. Because what you find, and again, this isn't intentional. This is unintentional stuff that we don't look at. Mm -hmm. Boy brains and boy biology. Now, this is not this is not gender orientation. That is a separate issue, and that is like I would say that's an add-on. You you are a male, you're in trouble. If you're a gay male, then you're really in trouble in terms of a lot of these systems. Not in trouble like that, but not going to be. You're going to be underserved or misserved by the system. Is set up against you in a lot of ways. I have a model that I call the mailbox, M-A-L-E, which is what boys are born into. Mm. And one of my students said, well, I'm an African-American male. And I realized, Dennis, I'm, I'm living in a box inside your box. I have an African-American mailbox that I have to survive in. And if I get out of that, I'm still trapped in the societal box and I'm behind. So so these are things I don't want people to confuse or think I'm not I'm not looking at that. But what do we know? We know things like uh, testosterone is a movement hormone and boys are born with more testosterone than girls. That's how you get a boy brain is you have two doses of testosterone in the uterus that girls don't get. And one of them makes you a male, a male brain and it gives you a high level of activity. So in order to, for, in order to succeed in school, you just have to sit still. Well, it's hard for boys to sit still. <laughs> uh, you have, uh, girls have the language speech and language center in a female brain is 350% larger than the male brain. So every minute or hour, a girl is producing 350 times more words than a boy. And then you say to a kid in counseling, tell me what you're feeling. And girl brains connect emotions to uh, vocabulary, boy brains don't. So saying, what are you feeling to a boy is like talking a foreign language, but then he feels defective because he can't do it. So we fail in school because not because we're intentionally, but unintentionally not taking this into account in most schools, not all, but in most schools. And then they go to counseling and they fail in counseling because most of the people historically in this country that have gone to counselors have always been female. So our theories are built around females. And when you fail in counseling, then you end up in prison. And the, the way I describe it, if you want to look at it, this is pre-COVID language, but just you want to talk about COVID being misrepresented in this country. Uh, what you were saying, we have 5% of the world population approximately that lives in the United States. That's a little old, but in that range. But we have 25% of the incarcerated population of the whole world in this country. And then look into that vast majority of African-American and Hispanic particularly. So, yeah, we, I always say we, we, have, we have a place to take care of our boys when we don't take care of them early. But if we're not, if we're not doing something about them. And I had, a, I had a, uh, uh, a male elementary school teacher who was an amazing guy. He was in my class. 
and I asked him why he took the class because he wasn't in the addictions program. And he said, Dennis, I've got 16 little guys every day in my classroom that need me to know what you're teaching. And nobody else is talking about this stuff. And I just always remember he had this big smile. He said, it's worth it. He paid his own money, took time out of his own life, came to that class for three and a half hours a week for 10 weeks. And but what he said was, I got 16 little boys that need this information. And then years later, I saw him and he told me what he had done differently and how he had like he, he took all of the desks out of his classroom. Said, why would you need a desk to sit still? He created yoga balls and the kids could choose. And if they wanted a desk, they could have one. But if they wanted to sit on the floor, they could. And if they wanted a yoga ball, he said, and my little boys. And he said, I found out if they were sitting behind a desk and I asked him a question, I would just get this dead, this kind of stare. But if I had them on a yoga ball and asked him the same question, they would, their brain would be kind of moving and they would just come out with the answer. <laughs> Tom, and I just remembered. And so I said, you know, this, he's the one that taught me it's not just a theory, it's possible. And there are people in the world who really care about this stuff. But when you talk about advancing and moving and helping our children, we got to look at all of the elements of definitely economics, definitely race, definitely culture, but also the gender piece has to be built in there both ways because we know girls get harmed. I've done workshops that uh, for uh, men uh, about tr treatment programs for male abusers. And the title of my workshop is Hurt Men Hurt. If you take a boy and he's injured enough, then this is not an excuse. I always tell people nothing I'm saying is any kind of an excuse for abhorrent male behavior. But if we want to stop it, we, we, we can't wait until it happens. We got to stop the damage that's happening early. You got to stop the damage that's leading to the addiction. You got to stop the damage that's leading to the, if you look at the number one cause of death for teenagers in Oregon today, it is suicide. That's the number one cause of death. And what most people don't realize from age 12 on, when we start measuring differential suicide rates, 70% or more of the suicide deaths are boys. Girls will have far more attempts, but when a boy does it, it's a male brain finishes the task and they don't give themselves an out. And that continues all the way through the lifespan. If you get over 80, you've got men killing themselves 14 times more than women, even, even through the, but, but just think about that. We're, again, we're talking prevention. We've got more kids killing themselves than any other, forget COVID or anything else than any other cause of death. But where is the vaccine for that? We just, uh, you know, social, uh, social will, like recognizing that it is a big deal. We have, in my opinion, as far as I can tell, like the physical resources to food, clothes, shelter, and educate, you know, everybody in the world, let alone the United States. And we just need the social political will to coordinate and make those resources available to people. Um, so, God, I, there's like so many things that you touch on that I would love to just riff philosophical, but uh, I've already eaten up about 45 minutes of the middle of your Thursday. Um, and so I really appreciate your time. You know, you've had a serendipitous and winding career and thanks for doing the work that hopefully will raise the floor of luck. So more people might be able to have a wandering, uh, career when they get bored and find something that they finally fall passionate, uh, worth pursuing is, uh, is there anything that I forgot to ask or anything else that you would, um, love to plug or that we should know about? Well, two things. One, again, I don't want to be seen discriminating. You know, I'm not for boys. I'm for both. And if you look at risk factors to young girls, 
the same thing. We've got a program for teen parents. And that means you have a girl under 18 who has an infant child. And that's something that then is going to affect that girl's life and that child's life for forever. And so it's not, it's not an either or, it's a both and. Absolutely. With this stuff. Uh, and the other piece that uh, we mentioned in our other discussion, but I wanted to just, uh, maybe it's a good place to finish off is, is it worth it in, in making this investment? Because what we talked about is the program you're talking about is going to be incredibly expensive to do well. Now you can put it together and I hopefully you can put piece at a time together. And I would say, start with a piece you can afford and then add to, to it. And then, but if you get the whole model, it's going to be incredibly expensive. But if you look at homeless use, I did a calculation uh, about three years ago because the federal government, well, no, it was a Washington state government was giving us money to uh, work with homeless youth. And they asked a question. They said, we want to know what's the return on investment for our money. If we put money, if we give you money now, how is that going to help our society or our state long term? So I sat down and did a calculation. I said, okay, if I take a homeless youth and then we, we consider youth up to age 24, at age 25, then they age into the adult system. When they're fully myelinated. So, yes, that's right. And if we have... Uh, at age 20, 20, say 19 or 20 to 24, 25, if we can get them into a program, into a housing program and job and readiness and those types of things, we have an 85 to 95% success rate of them maintaining that and not, not becoming homeless. So you have an astronomically high rate of success. One of my programs in Washington state at one point was running 97%, but it's, it's they're different types of programs for different kids, but we have over an 85% that part we know. Now I did a calculation. I said, let's suppose that 24 year old becomes 25 and becomes an adult and stays homeless. What's going to happen to them? What's the cost going to be for mental health? What do you think the cost is going to be for health? If they get incarcerated, if they're a female and they have kids and their kids are going to be in foster care. And what I came up with, and I always considered a conservative estimate was return on investment for a young man, $2.1 million. Mm. $2.1 million that would be conservatively how much society will spend just on that kid if he is off. For a girl, it was $2.7 million mm. because with kids, she's more likely to have other medical and foster care and other kinds of needs with that. Uh, and I did see after that, I saw a national study that was done. I liked mine because it was local, but the national study across the country and their estimate was $3.1 million. Just they would say three points. But let's just say conservatively two and a half to three million dollars for every child's life that we save i think it's worth saving the life because it's they're worth saving but if you want to say is it worth spending the money this is an expensive program i said no an expensive program is what happens if you don't save them if you don't do it when you're talking about it, if we don't do it now and people say all the time i know it's going to be cost well we're talking just what could you do you know if we have oh and by the way Janice right now is paying rent for over 150 homeless youth in Oregon and Washington. In some months, we've been over 200 youth. That means they're off of the street. Now you multiply 200 by 3 million. And you tell me, is that worth the investment? One might consider it dismal that we have to relate to money, but it's the closest thing we've got to a fundamental unit of caring. And that might be the only argument you get to convince people. So let's let's bring on let's bring on the numbers. Not doing anything is costing us already. Let's look at 
the world around us and let's look at emergency room bills. So yeah, it's already costing us. Yeah, I, I believe, and I think you do too. We, we, we believe that we are doing this because the kids deserve it. Intrinsically. But if you want to look at a society, a society issue, if we don't do it, what's it costing us? Mm-hmm. And that's costing all of us in the future a huge amount. Well, very good. Powerful words to, uh, to let us contemplate as we move forward. Um, thanks again for your time and insight. This was valuable for me, and I'm sure anybody listening to this will certainly know a few more things when they're done. Um, and maybe we can touch base again in the future. I really appreciate it. And I just want to reemphasize, I told people where I work, but I'm not here as a spokesperson for that. This is the, nothing I said today represents Janice's official view, although much of it is philosophy developed over time, that it's taught me, the kids have taught me, but this is only Dennis's wild and crazy view of the world. So I'll take total responsibility for that. Wonderful, wonderful.